The end of July is upon the far middle. I'm still loving summer. I hope you are as well. This is your host, Nick Deolius. Let's get rolling right into episode number 114. We first broadcast this episode on July 26th. Tomorrow on July 27th, back in what I believe to be the year 1957, in the Bronx, New York, there was a baseball game. And the New York Yankees were hosting the Detroit Tigers. And that's when catcher Yogi Berra started a streak of airless games behind the plate that ended after 148 games, didn't end until May of 1959. That was a Major League Baseball record for the position at the time, and really, this was just one of Barra's noteworthy accomplishments across his career. It's an opportunity to finally recognize him with a dedication, now that we are 100-plus episodes into the far middle history. And it's amazing, I suppose, we haven't gotten around to a Yogi dedication as of yet, but now we check that box for the far middle, and Yogi Berra's life was just an exemplar in absolute excellence. First, what a player. Maybe the most accomplished all-around player in the history of baseball. He's, of course, in the Baseball Hall of Fame, three-time MVP. Only Barry Bonds has won more MVPs in a career. 13-time champion as a player and as a coach of the World Series. And when you win the World Series that many times, it means he's also going to hold a load of World Series records, which he does. Holds the career record for games played in the World Series, at-bats, World Series hits, doubles, World Series singles, games caught, and of course, catcher putouts in the World Series. And he hit the first pinch hit home run in World Series history too, by the way. How about this? Five times, Barra had more home runs than strikeouts in a season. And he and his Yankees teammate, Joe DiMaggio, they're the only players to hit 350 or more home runs while striking out fewer than 400 times in their career. Yogi Berra knew how to protect the plate as a batter. And what a personality. How about all those quotes and quips, all those yogiisms, so to speak? Here's some of the more popular ones. When you come to a fork in the road, take it. You can observe a lot just by watching. It ain't over till it's over. It's like deja vu all over again. No one goes there nowadays. It's too crowded. Baseball? is 90% mental, and the other half is physical, and always go to other people's funerals, otherwise they won't come to yours. And what an American. He grew up in St. Louis in an Italian neighborhood, went off to fight in World War II. He joined the Navy in 1943. He uh, served as a gunner's mate, and he was on the attack transport USS Bayfield during the Normandy invasions. He was one of a six-man crew on a Navy rocket boat, firing machine guns and launching rockets at the German defenses on Omaha Beach. He was fired upon and later received several commendations for his bravery. And during an interview he gave on the 65th anniversary of D-Day, Barra confirmed that he was sent to Utah Beach as well during those D-Day invasions. And according to the United States Department of Veterans Affairs, he was also shot in the left hand during Operation Dragoon in southern France, and that's an injury which earned him a Purple Heart. And then what a human being and what a family man. Uh, Married 65 years, great and loyal friend, impactful mentor to scores of young players, both when he played as well as when he coached and managed, supported all kinds of causes. He was one of those rare people who no matter what your walk of life or what your leanings were, you liked them and you admired them. Heck, even George Steinbrenner loved them. Now, was Yogi the greatest catcher ever in the history of baseball? I think he was certainly the best all-around catcher for sure. And that's no offense to Johnny Bench, 
who I placed second and could arguably could be placed at first uh, in that list. At least no offense to Bench as a player, who, by the way, made some pretty offensive remarks about a week or two weeks ago. I'm not sure if you saw that. And no offense to Ivan Rodriguez or Yadi Molina, two more recent players that I would put in that top five backstops of all time list. Now, they say they don't make them like they used to. That's certainly true for Yogi Berra and for that era when he played, when America was all about the bright future that was sitting just over that horizon. I wasn't around then. That was before my time. But I can vaguely remember that the feeling of the best is yet to come in America. I can remember uh, when that bled into sort of the start of my generation when I was a kid. And Barra's generation was a big reason why we were able to feel that way as a nation. So a fitting dedication for sure. I miss those days, constant listeners. You know, the good old days. Reminds me of that uh, Chicago single from their earlier years before they became a Peter Cetera backing ballads band. The single was old days, and most of us tend to skew the young years from the past to the positive. I'm sure they weren't perfect, but they seem it now. And speaking of things then seeming different than today, let's start our connections by jumping to the topic of the Unabomber, of all things. Ted Kaczynski died back in mid-June this year in prison, 81 years old, and his death sort of got me reflecting and thinking, about uh, how he was viewed then versus how some of his positions and thoughts are viewed today. Now, the Unabomber's manifesto, you remember that? The title of it was Industrial Society and Its Future. And the Unabomber demanded its publication. He demanded that the manifesto be published. And I think it was the Washington Post and the New York Times, that duo of papers, they agreed to publish it before he was caught. He uh, promised to stop mailing bombs if the manifesto was published. And from what I recall, he actually lived up to that, uh, that promise or that commitment. But the publication of it, of that manifesto, got him actually apprehended when his brother read it on the, uh, the newspaper. And you could tell uh, from the writing and the ranting that it came from Kaczynski. Now, what I want to focus on with this connection is the content of that manifesto or select pieces of it. It was all over the place in total. But key portions of the manifesto are quite interesting when viewed in the filters of time, specifically the ranting on how technology and science are hurting the natural world. Kaczynski was quite the eco-warrior and radical environmentalist. Back then, uh, those environmental views, along with all of his other rantings, they were viewed as crazy. But today, his views on science and tech and anti-progress and the environment, they're basically mainstream. So let me dive a little deeper to provide you a few examples of what I'm speaking of. So Kaczynski hated what he called, and this is using his terms, the blather and obfuscation from the people who have power on environmental matters. Now, today that sounds a lot like talking points from code redders and entitled students from elite universities throwing paint on Monet's and museums in the name of climate justice. And how about this gem from Bomber Ted? We keep on piling up environmental problems that our grandchildren will have to live with. Those are his words. That sounds a lot like Al Gore or take your pick of a mainstream environmental organization. Kaczynski also says in a manifesto that, again using his words, the Industrial Revolution and its consequences have been a disaster for the human race. So lovable young Greta out there in Scandinavia channeled the manifesto big time. When you compare it with what I just read to what she says, 
about nations such as the UK and their climate crimes. Kaczynski, he hated science, arguing in his manifesto that progress has, quote, inflicted severe damage to the natural world, end quote. How many times can you spot that fundamental belief that the earth is more important than the human in today's climate policies? It's everywhere. It's embedded within those policies. And the Unabomber also argued that society can't take care of itself or the planet. So do radical environmentalists. They argue the same thing. Now, Ted decided to become a hermit in the woods and kill people, whereas modern Code Red faithful, they stay in society and force society to take steps backward that harm the human and the individual rights of the human in the name of saving the planet. So the climate policies that the environmental movement demands, they kill as well, many more than a Unabomber, but not directly. And instead, of course, indirectly through policies that manufacture human misery. Now, at one point in the manifesto, the Unabomber reflected that, quote, if we had never done anything violent and had submitted the present writings to a publisher, they probably would not have been accepted. He also went on to say, in order to get our message before the public with some chance of making a lasting impression, we had to kill people. Again, how times have changed. Because almost 30 years later, publishers, they will eagerly await to broadcast the next installment of the religion of radical environmentalism from the Church of Climate. In some ways, the Unabomber is one of the patron saints of the Code Red movement, Yet another reason why I remain opposed to such a movement is if I needed another reason. What the Unabomber preached with his hate and what the Church of Climate sets as a foundational commandment brings us to a higher level connection. More and more of the elite and the expert classes, they're voicing a proposition that technology and capitalism, they're not benefiting the human condition, that these things need to be reined in and controlled. Now, by who or what? Well, of course, by the state, run by the expert and elite class and trained by elite academia. Actually, the argument is even more insidious than what I just summarized. The core of the logic from the elite is that the individual is not the best entity to decide things for the individual. That the state is better at deciding for you and for me than we are for ourselves. Now, that is crazy when you say it out loud, but elites with diplomas on the wall from the most exclusive of institutions people with uh, Nobel-type prizes on their shelves, they're positing this very concept everywhere, and they're doing it quite often. Of course, such an argument lands on socialism as a far superior economic system than capitalism, and environmentalism is a convenient religion to this group, because in the name of Mother Earth, you can control just about every decision an individual would be able to make. You'd be able to stifle it and you can wrestle control of the decision over to the bureaucrat and to the state. And by the way, we don't need to state the obvious, but what the heck? The fact that you're a constant listener means you know this idea of the state knowing better is all nonsensical hogwash. Just look at what we call in the real world facts. In 1960, 4 billion people on the planet lived on less than $2 a day out of a total of 5 billion people at the time. In other words, 80% of the human race back in 1960 lived on less than $2 a day. Today, only 1 billion out of 8 billion have to do so. And you know what? If climate policies were immediately scrapped and reversed, the 1 billion would be drastically shrunk even further. Government, you know, sure is, you know what, did not accomplish that. What did accomplish it? The private sector and the free market and capitalism and science and technology, 
in individuals making decisions for themselves due to the protection of individual rights. And the Earth, by the way, was a beneficiary as well. It's in much better shape today. You know this stuff matters on both the uh, small and the large scale, the local to the global. When the state controls decisions and religions of the left, like environmentalism, take root in policy, the crazy becomes the norm. And it's not just with the Unabomber's manifesto. Consider the next connection of what is going on with Iran and energy. Let me frame this up for you by reading two headlines from about a month ago that appeared on news feeds the very same day. The first one was from Reuters, and it read, U.S. drillers cut oil and gas rigs for the seventh week in a row. The second headline was one from a business journal, and it read, Iran oil exports hit a five-year high. These two appeared on the same day, which blew my mind. So let's break down why we see these two developments in the news contemporaneously. It comes down to all the things we've been discussing in this far middle episode. Current U.S. energy policy is run by the left, and it uses the religion of worshiping Mother Earth above the individual human to take away the freedom of the private sector and domestic energy industry and replace it with a state-controlled industry. Also, there's a shift to the global form of state control when it comes to these matters of the left. We see it in energy and climate. We also saw it with banking and with COVID policies. So you got to think more UN and World Health Organization and Davos and World Bank and so on. That global elitist perspective will not only be leftist, but also it will look to appease players like Iran. That's a big reason why Iran can export so much of its oil these days as it pursues a nuke. But more on that in a minute. And last, the energy needs to come from somewhere, they have to come from somewhere for those 8 billion people on the planet. So if U.S. oil and natural gas are stymied and are forbidden to provide for the masses, something's going to fill that void or satisfy the BTU balance, so to speak. And that something is OPEC or Russia or, in this case, Iran. And it should not be surprising when you think it through. The left and movements like the climate change crowd and crazies like the Unabomber They despise science, and they don't like the individual and the free market and high quality of life and progress. Those things are bad. So something like the shale revolution in a capitalistic and free market society like the United States, it's going to have a target on its back from the get-go. The left and environmentalists and the Unabomber, they hated this success. And think of what I just said. They hated success. That says all you need to know. And on the flip side, those very same entities are going to want to see a comrade in arms like in Iran do whatever it can and help it to not only move along and function, but also to help in Iran solve that nagging energy balance problem in the short term so the movement doesn't get exposed too soon with its inevitable consequences. Yeah, this makes all the sense in the world when you think it through from the perspective of a religion. And that uh, sort of brings us to what I mentioned a minute ago, and we can connect to now, that being Iranian appeasement. So let me give you a little bit of history. First, uh, during President Obama's administration, John Kerry, if you recall, he was Secretary of State, and he bent himself into a human pretzel trying to kiss the behind of the Iranian regime. Now, we were told this was the enlightened way to handle Iran, engagement and dialogue and meetings and of course, hollow press conferences. And oh yeah, don't forget a pallet or two of cash that we airlifted to Iran. 
Remember those photos of our money in a transport plane heading off to the killer of Jews and Christians and Westerners? Now, John Kerry was channeling his best Neville Chamberlain with that one, and President Obama assured us that his charisma would woo that regime into acting humanely. All that led to the highly touted, but as it turns out to be useless, Iran nuke deal of 2015. Well, a lot has changed since then, but one thing hasn't. Yes, President Obama exited office, and John Kerry went from Secretary of State to his current absurdity of a position, climate czar. And today we've got a president who might not always understand he is president, and I mean that literally, not to be funny, but Iran has not changed. It kept enriching uranium, and some experts say it could be days away from a nuclear bomb. But we still keep on appeasing Iran. That hasn't changed except for four years of President Trump, who on at least the matter of Iran is looking more and more to have been in the right on that one. Even though some of those uh, Iranian documents, uh, those confidential documents might be boxed laying around in some ornate bathroom or some other room down in President Trump's Florida shack. But here's where we are on Iran today. President Biden said he would get a longer and stronger deal with Iran. Those are his words. But Iran already has enriched materials needed for a bomb, or actually, some say bombs, as in plural, at this point. Iran has taken Americans as prisoners, and it's using those prisoners as bargaining chips, and it's sending drones to Russia to use against the Ukraine. It's working. That bad behavior by Iran is being rewarded by Washington. The Biden administration now says it doesn't need a formal deal with Iran, that it only needs an unwritten understanding whatever that means, that Iran will not keep chasing nuclear bomb capabilities. So no inspectors, no turning over of already enriched material, nothing, just an understanding. And the Biden administration, by the way, recently granted Iraq a sanctions waiver to buy over $2.5 billion worth of Iranian gas and electricity. So that's right, a sitting U.S. administration, it's setting policy, that vilifies and attacks domestic oil and natural gas at home while it allows the sale of Iran's same products and trusts that Iran will suddenly stop doing what it's been rewarded to do from the get-go. Crazy. Seems to be the theme of episode 114, doesn't it? Crazy. That connects right into the topic of U.S. appeasement and how it leads to weakness, which then leads to more geopolitical risk, not less. And we saw it with many examples through history. I mentioned uh, Chamberlain in World War II. But here are three current examples with the U.S. and the Biden administration where appeasement and weakness is going to lead to big-time problems for the planet. First, as we just mentioned, the Iranian pursuit of nuclear weapons is going to make the planet much worse off. What do you suppose Israel is thinking right now? Do you think it can afford to allow Iran to get the bomb? If it thinks the U.S. is feckless, which Israel probably does at this point, Israel will likely act to preempt Iran going to nuclear weapon power, and that's going to ignite the Mideast and beyond. Second, there is Russia and Ukraine. So Russia invades twice. The Ukrainians fight against the odds heroically, and the West twiddles its thumbs and talks about maybe sending arms or jets or tanks, maybe in the future. Let's convene and issue a press statement and say those catchphrases. But whatever we say, don't do anything tangible. Well, what makes Putin bolder and more confident that he can wait it out and wear down Ukraine 
It's those types of actions. Bad actors are rewarded by appeasement and weakness. What do you think Poland or the Baltic states will do? They know they're next if Ukraine falls. They're going to act, which is going to further ignite the situation in Eastern Europe and beyond. And then the third and the last is the example that, frankly, I worry about the most, and that is China and Taiwan. China is astute. It watches this clueless administration along with Western Europe on the issues of Iran and Russia, Ukraine, and China begins to think, I can certainly take Taiwan right now, and what is the United States or the West going to do about it? The current president there can't even get through a live press conference. Decision-making with the current U.S. leadership team has to be slowed and non-existent, particularly for high stakes and fast-moving situations like Taiwan would be. Now, a lot of experts, they say Russia's sort of struggles and their slog in the Ukraine, that's going to give China pause on moving on Taiwan. The thinking is because Russia is paying a steeper than expected price, uh, President Xi in China will think twice before moving on a prepared Taiwan. I disagree with that smug assessment big time. Why? Well, it goes back to the facts. As I said, our current leadership in the United States and the West is weak. It's confused and it lacks an action bias. That's opportunity to China. Second, Taiwan is not prepared or as prepared as it could have been because the rudderless U.S. leadership in the West, it refuses to arm it to the extent that it could have. That is a window for China. And then third, the West is already spread thin. You've got a Russia situation. You've got Iran with its situation. And you know that Russia and Iran and China act in concert. What little support we send to Ukraine, that drains resources for elsewhere. Having to police and embolden Iran, that drains us further. We're spread much too thin to handle a Taiwan situation now. As I said, you look at the facts and you come away with a scary prognosis that China will never have an opportunity like it does right now with Taiwan. You add to this the other fact that Xi is dealing with domestic problems from economy to age demographics, and you see how this isn't so much a risk for China as it is an epic opportunity. And what's sad is that the United States was in a position to make it a huge risk, not worth taking for China, but we bungled it into creating an opportunity for China that might be just too good to pass up. Why? Again, because of weakness, lack of leadership, and a bias toward word versus action in D.C. leaders who strike humor in the halls of power across the globe, not respect. All this talk of American decline and lack of leadership um, and the presence of the left everywhere in this nation these days, they all sort of remind me of a, a great next connection, the Roman Empire and what caused its decline and fall. That theme is appropriate here in the episode 114 of The Far Middle because the parallels to the United States today, they're sort of eerie. Most historians say, and many of us were taught, that the Roman Empire fell from outside forces that overcame it. The Germanic people invading at the empire's borders, um, wearing the Romans down, and ultimately making the empire succumb. That's at least what I was taught. But I'm not so sure about that view these days. The more I read and think about this, I come to the view that the Roman Empire fell from within. It killed itself. You had the bread and circuses to keep the urbanites in Rome happy and distracted. You had a devalued currency to kick the fiscal can down the road. Poor leadership at critical times and decision points. That didn't help either. Rome died from an internal degradation. 
if it were a person, it went from prime of health, being in great shape, good habits, always evolving and improving. For lack of a better term, it went from disciplined, but then it turned into something that was lazy. Laziness started to creep in. Rome got fat, it ate poorly, it stopped learning, and it turned into its version of reality TV streaming. And it waited for others to do in the forms of budget deficits, less silver in the coinage, indulgent leaders, an eroded societal set of values, focuses, focusing on games instead of tasks at hand, and so on. Again, Rome ended up killing itself. Is America killing itself? Yes, surely with a little help from our enemies like Iran and Russia and China, but the left in control of this nation is singularly focused on not just changing America, but I believe having it fail, and soon. And we can't let that happen, can we? We still have time, don't we? Time to bring episode 114 to a close. This was an intense one, but this stuff, it really matters. And I hope you found it engaging and a bit inspiring to go out and do your part to advocate for America, not calling it a day, and to continue on with our next awesome chapter of the American legacy. As I said, the singular theme of this episode we had to pick one, would be crazy. All these insane and, well, stupid positions and decisions that we're making. And that brings to mind the topic of crazy in music. There are some great songs and compositions out there with crazy in the name. Here's a Mount Rushmore of crazy music. First, Crazy from Patsy Cline, 1961. Pre-rock and country at a time when country was starting to shape what would become rock. Two things you probably didn't know about Patsy's hit Crazy. First, she didn't write it. You know who did? A young Willie Nelson. That's Willie Nelson before the IRS tax problems, but maybe not before the affinity he developed for weed. Uh, second, her version of Crazy became the most played song on jukeboxes in American history, reaching that milestone somewhere in the mid-1990s. That's quite an accomplishment. Of course, we must have on that Mount Rushmore Ozzy Osbourne's Crazy Train. 1980, off of his first album as a solo act after leaving Black Sabbath, actually after being fired uh, by Black Sabbath, and as a song title ever matched the creator and performer better than Crazy Train and Ozzy. Actually, though, the lyrics, they're not about his insanity. Uh, they're about world war and nuclear war, which is sort of fitting for this episode, don't you agree? And what makes that song so special is the incomparable work of Randy Rhodes on guitar, Randy Rhodes and Eddie Van Halen doing their thing at the same time, almost hard to fathom, except it actually did happen. Prince is perhaps the greatest musical genius of the modern era, so we have to have Let's Go Crazy on that Mount Rushmore for him and for that single, off of course the Purple Rain soundtrack and movie. And that song, by the way, has two great guitar solos, both by Prince, who was epic on guitar in just about every other musical instrument that he laid hands on. And then here's one from the early 90s, late 80s, from an underappreciated act. She Drives Me Crazy from Fine Young Cannibals. Great single from that era. And it was, by the way, co-produced, interestingly, by a Prince associate. Now I'll go with uh, those four on my Mount Rushmore of Crazy. Honorable mentions to Queen for Crazy Little Thing and Gnarls Barkley's Crazy. Uh, like those two songs as well. And of course, Heart Crazy on You. Now, I'm not going to go crazy on you, constant listeners, until next week at least, when we shall meet once again in the far middle ether. <laughs>